These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another episode of the Greek Myth Files. We return after a special episode to Jason and the Argonauts, the famous sailors on the good ship Argo. In the last episode, we explored the history of the Argo and its crew. In this one, we're going to follow the Argonauts on their voyage from their home in Iolcus through the Aegean Sea, the Hellespont, and finally the Bosporus on their voyage to Colchis, where the Golden Fleece resides. Along the way, we'll visit the various places and peoples that the Argonauts encounter, including the Lemnian women, Phineas and the Harpies, and much, much more. Since this episode features awesome stories of adventure, we're going to spend more time just telling the stories and let Apollonius, the author of the Argonautica, do more of the talking for us. As always, we provide a map and other visual aids to help you follow along the way on our website, manto-myth.org. So, sit back and relax and enjoy another edition of the Greek Myth Files. When we last left them, the Argonauts, Jason and his 53 companions, were about to set sail from Iolcus on mainland Greece and head to the distant land of the Colchians in the far east. But rather than heading straight out over the vast Aegean Sea, the Argos skirted the coasts to the north and east, keeping the land visible to them at all times, as was traditional in ancient sea voyages. The ancient Greeks avoided the open sea when possible. At first, the rowers pulled at the oars to get away from the shore, and when they were far away from the surf, they raised the sails, guided by the steady hand of its expert steersman, Tiphys. Again, for those super interested in the specific path the Argo took, according to Apollonius, feel free to take a look at our detailed map at manto-myth.org. When the Argonauts eventually land on the island of Lemnos, their first stop really, it creates quite a buzz among the locals, who have something of a terrible secret about their past. You see, the only inhabitants of the island were women, who had committed a horrifying atrocity just a year before. As Apollonius tells it, Here, in the previous year, the women had run riot and slaughtered every male inhabitant. The married men, seized with loathing for their lawful wives, had cast them off conceiving an unruly passion for the captured girls they brought across the sea from raids in Thrace. The Lemnian wives had for long neglected the honors due to Aphrodite, and this was the angry Cyprian's punishment. Oh, unhappy women! Their soul-destroying and insensate jealousy drove them to kill not only their husbands and the girls who had usurped their beds, but every male as well, in order that they might not have to pay the price one day for this atrocious massacre. The only woman to hold off was Hypsipyle. She spared her aged father Thoas, who was king of Lemnos, and sent him drifting over the sea inside a chest, in the hope that he might yet escape. And so he did. Some fishermen dragged him ashore at the island then called Enui, but later renamed Sycanus after the son whom the nymph Enui bore to Thoas. When the Lemnian women see the Argo approaching, they were worried that it might be warriors from Thrace coming to raid their island. So Hypsipyle, the queen, and the other women don armor in case they had to put up a fight. But when Jason sent his herald to show that they were friendly and to ask them to stay the night and get provisions, the Lemnian women convened a council. What should they do? 
Hip simply argued that they should generously supply them with all the food, good wine, and other provisions that they need, but not to let them inside the city so as not to have to reveal their dreaded secret. But an older woman named Polixo wisely reminded them that there were a number of problems that would crop up without menfolk around. What would happen when the young women grow old? Surely having some children would be a good idea, so why not take advantage of this heaven-sent group of young men who just happened upon their shores? All of the women applauded Polixo's plan, so Queen Hypsipyle invited Jason to visit them in the city. When Jason arrived, Hypsipyle gave an account of why there were no men that was very different than the truth. When their husbands were raiding Thrace on the mainland, they conceived a passion for the Thracian concubines they had brought home. Instead of caring for their own family and legitimate children, Hypsipyle explained, they spent their time with their trollops. The whole social order was thrown on its head. So the women decided to act. When the men went on a raid in Thrace, the women shut the gates of the city tight and would not let them back in. Locked in a stalemate, the men demanded all of the male children be let out, and when they were, all the males went to live across the sea in Thrace. That's why, Hip simply concluded, there were no men left in the city, and she invited the Argonauts to stay with them. She was even ready to hand over the kingdom to Jason himself if he wished. Jason returned to the Argo to report the invitation, and meanwhile all the young girls in the city drove carts full of gifts down to the ship. As Apollonius puts it, they did not find it difficult to make the Argonauts come home with them for entertainment, for Aphrodite was working her magic. And not only did the Argonauts, with the exception of Heracles and some of his attendants, go into the city, they stayed there day after day, partying and having a grand old time. Heracles eventually got fed up and decided to confront his wayward comrades, shaming them into getting ready for departure. Disconsolate, Hypsipyle and the other Lemnian women raced to the shore. Jason tries to comfort her, and she asks him what she should do if she is pregnant, and, spoiler alert, she is. He responds, if he did not return home from his quest, she should send their son to Iolcus to comfort his old parents. And with that, the Argonauts set sail once again. After another brief stop, the Argonauts finally passed through the Hellespont and into the Sea of Marmara. Listeners of this podcast will remember that the Hellespont is the place where Heli fell off the Golden Ram, and that's where the Strait of Water took its name. The modern name of the sea is taken from the island of Marmara, which is so-called because it is a rich source of high-quality marble, or Marmaron in Greek. The name of that island in ancient Greek times was Prokinesis, and if you know something about ancient architecture, you might have heard of Proconesian marble, which was used for all sorts of monuments from the tomb of Mausolus in Halicarnassus to the arch of Septimius Severus in Rome, as well as for artistic sculpture and marble caskets called sarcophagi. It was used for a lot of things. The ancient name for the sea itself was the Propontis, which means the sea before the sea. That is, the smaller sea before you get to the larger Black Sea on the other side of the Bosporus. The Argonauts encounter a lot of interesting folk in this area, and again, we have a handy map on the website to help you see the geography. The first people that the Argonauts encounter here are the Doliones, led by their king named Sisychus, that's Sisychus with a C. 
These are the more civilized people of the area, descended from the god Poseidon, who protected them from the more hostile creatures in the area, which were earth-born monsters with six arms growing from their torso. Sisychus and his people treated the Argonauts kindly, hosting them and offering them provisions. During the stay, while Jason and some of his men are scoping out the sea from atop a mountain, the monstrous six-handers attack the ship. But the great Heracles is there to do what he does best, rid the world of dangerous monsters. He, along with the rest of the Argonauts who had quickly come back, dispatched the monsters to the relief of all involved. But doom was afoot. For when the Argonauts set sail the very next day, the winds died and then turned against them as evening fell. The Argo was swept back toward the land it had just left, and in the blinding darkness, Sisychus and the Doliones thought that they were under attack by marauders. They donned their armor and set out to defend their land. The Argonauts themselves, equally ignorant, thought that they were under attack and met them in battle. Their king himself was not allowed to cheat the fates and come home from the battle to his young wife in her bridal bed. Jason, as the king swung around to face him, leapt in and struck him full in the breast, shattering the bone with his spear. Sisychus then sank down on the sands. He had had his span of life, and more than that, no mortal can command. We are like birds, trapping in the wide net of destiny. In the melee, Jason faced off against Sisychus, killing him, and the Argonauts defeated their former hosts, who retreat in terror. But then the cloak of darkness was lifted. Then came the dawn, and taught both sides their grievous and irreparable error. The Minii were overcome with sorrow when they saw Sisychus lying in the dust and blood. And for three whole days they and the Doliones wailed for him and tore their hair. They then marched three times round the dead king in their bronze armor, laid him in his tomb, and held the customary games out on the grassy plain, where the barrow they raised for him can still be seen by people of a later age. Although Apollonius does not explicitly tell us, the story is partly to explain where the important historical city Sisychus got its name. Eventually, the Argonauts loosed their ship under blustery conditions. As the winds grew even wilder, they were unable to use the sail, and the rowers were hard-pressed to keep the ship aright and on course. Heracles, the strongest of the heroes, was working the hardest, but he actually proved too strong, for when he pulled on the oar with all of his might, his oar snapped in half, and he sat there, holding the shaft, looking baffled. It is an amusing account in Apollonius's otherwise heroic epic, but more importantly, it would lead to a series of events that would leave the Argonauts' three men lighter. The Argonauts landed on the shore of an area known as Mysia, so that they could restock their provisions and Heracles could find a tree to fashion himself a new oar, one that could perhaps withstand his brawn. While Heracles was out in search of the perfect pine tree, his attendant and close companion named Hylas, H-Y-L-A-S, went in search of water to prepare Heracles' meal so that it was ready when he got back. Now, the reason why Hylas is hanging out with Heracles in the first place may be of interest to some. Drilling down to the main points, 
Hylas was once the son of a king that had been killed by Heracles after a squabble over an ox. Now, the reason for the dispute differs in details, and nowhere is the aftermath actually explained, but the implication is that after the king's death, Heracles took Hylas as a prisoner. In some sources, Hylas is actually the younger lover of Heracles, which is not mutually exclusive of the other version. At any rate, when Hylas went out to fetch water, he had no idea what he would encounter. Hylas soon found a spring, which the people of the area call Pegai. He reached it when the nymphs were about to hold their dances. It was the custom of all those who haunt that beautiful headland to sing the praise of Artemis by night. The nymphs of the mountain peaks and caverns were all posted some way off to patrol the woods. But one, the naiad of the spring, was just emerging from the limpid water as Hylas drew near. And there, with the full moon shining on him from a clear sky, she saw him in all his radiant beauty and alluring grace. Her heart was flooded by desire. She had a struggle to regain her scattered wits. But Hylas now leaned over to one side to dip his ewer in, and as soon as the water was gurgling loudly around the ringing bronze, she threw her left arm around his neck in her eagerness to kiss his gentle lips. Then with her right hand, she drew his elbow down and plunged him into the spring. Heracles himself didn't hear Hylas's cries for help, but another Argonaut named Polyphemus did, and when he reported it to Heracles, the latter erupted in a fury, racing here and there to find Hylas. Meanwhile, the steersman Tiphys noticed that the winds were favorable and urged Jason to get moving. They did, and they were out to sea when they realized that they had left Heracles and Polyphemus behind. This leads to a scuffle among some of the crew. How can you possibly leave the greatest Greek hero behind? But eventually the decision is made to sail on, and the Argonauts head off for their next adventure without Heracles. Before moving on, it's worth pausing here to note that there is a lot of debate among ancient authors about Heracles' role in the Argonaut adventure. In fact, at the beginning of Apollonius's poem, when Jason asks the assembled men to choose a leader, all eyes immediately went not to Jason, but to Heracles, who was a natural choice given his impressive past. He, of course, refuses and urges the men to accept Jason as the leader of the expedition. Apollonius' narrative, however, may be playing with the debate among ancient writers about Heracles' role. One author, we read, made Heracles the leader of the Argonauts and said he sailed all the way to Colchis. Others state that he started out with the Argonauts only to have the Argo herself complain about his massive weight, leading the Argonauts to ditch him at a place called Aphetai early in the voyage. Yet another stated that he made it all the way to Colchis, but just as one of the crew. Finally, we even have one author who states that Heracles could not have been part of the expedition because he was slave to an eastern queen named Omphale at the time. It's pretty clear that Apollonius' version is playing with the different mythological traditions as he creates his own version of the myth. Next up are a couple of episodes involving pairs of brothers. After leaving Heracles, Polyphemus, and Hylas behind, the Argonauts head toward the Bosporus, the narrow channel of water that leads from the Propontis to the Black Sea. As they approach, the winds died, and they landed on the closest shore where the Bebrises lived. The king of the Bebrises, a son of Poseidon, was named Amicus, and he was, as Apollonius puts it, 
the biggest bully around. He used to make visitors engage in a boxing match with him before moving along, a terrible toll for travelers. And Amicus was big, burly, strong, and ogre-ugly. He'd already killed a whole bunch of visitors before the arrival of the Argonauts. But he did not know that the Argonauts had an ace in the hole, and that ace was named Polydeuces in Greek and Pollux in Latin and English. In contrast with Amicus, Polydeuces was lithe, athletic, and a beautiful young Greek. His brother, the horseman Castor, helped him put on the gloves, and the two very different combatants started to box. Now, by the way, gloves in ancient Greek boxing were just straps of leather. Polydeuces stood there, measuring the strengths and weaknesses of his opponent, who was strong but lumbering. After several minutes of fighting, the final moment came, a symbol of the technical mastery of the Greek over the brawn of his less civilized enemy, Amicus. The ogre raised his giant fist high and brought it down towards his foe for a crushing blow. But Polydeuces, with a subtle move, shifted to avoid the blow, and with a lightning quick left to the temple of his opponent, shattered his skull, killing him. The Bebrises rallied to avenge their king, but they were no match for the Argonauts' skill in battle. After taking the Bebrises' cattle as provisions and resting for a while, the Argonauts were soon back on the sea. In the distance, the Bosporus loomed. Before entering it, the Argonauts made one last stop on the other side of the strait, in the land of Thrace where a most unfortunate man lived, a blind man named Phineas. The backstory of Phineas is enormously varied and complicated, but Apollonius gives this version. Phineas had been granted the power of prophecy given to him by Apollo. But he failed to use judgment in what he revealed to mortals, and so Zeus punished him with blindness and a lingering old age. Zeus also punished him in another way, by sending the so-called harpies to steal his food and to leave a foul stench with their excrements. Every time Phineas sat down to enjoy a meal, the harpies would swoop in lightning quick and be off in a dash, leaving Phineas to further misery. Now, the harpies are aptly named. The Greek verb harpazdo means snatch, and is the equivalent of the Latin word raptor, which was made famous by the Jurassic Park denizen the velociraptor, which means swift snatcher. They are primeval beings, the harpies, the daughters of primeval gods, and we learn their names from Hesiod, Aiello, and Okupete, which are significant, meaning whirlwind and swift flying in Greek. In the earliest art we have featuring the harpies, they are beautiful young women bearing wings on their backs, but there are other versions which depict them as part woman, part bird, an image that can be found on ancient coins of the area and in literary depictions that emphasize their double foul nature, that is F-O-W-L and F-O-U-L, hideous and pale with hunger. At any rate, to combat these winged harpies, one needs to have winged combatants as well. And fortunately among the Argonauts, there were two sons of Boreas, the north wind, named Zetes and Calais, who had wings and the power of flight. So, after learning about Phineas's situation, the Argonauts decide to set a trap. The younger members of the party immediately prepared a meal for the old man. The last pickings that the harpies were to get from him. While Zetes and Calais took their stand beside him, ready to smite them with their swords when they attacked. And Phineas had scarcely taken the first morsel up when with as little warning as a whirlwind or a lightning flash they dropped from the clouds, proclaiming their desire for food with raucous cries. 
The young lord saw them coming and raised the alarm, yet they had hardly done so before the harpies had devoured the whole meal and were on the wing once more, far out at sea. All they left behind them was an intolerable stench. The harpies came down so quickly that no one had time to react. They were gone so fast. So Zetes and Calais flew in hot pursuit, and even though the harpies moved as swiftly as gale winds, the sons of Boreas were hot on their heels. In fact, they would have caught them and killed them with their swords if the gods had not sent Iris, the messenger goddess, and in some texts the harpy's sister, to intervene and tell Zetes and Calais that they were not fated to kill the harpies, but that in return the harpies would never bother Phineas again. Their task completed, Zetes and Calais made the long journey back to their comrades. Now that Phineas had been rid of his constant bane, he returned the favor by using his prophetic skills to foretell what the Argonauts would face on the rest of their journey to Colchis. Now, the first obstacle was also going to be the most treacherous, the famous clashing rocks. After they leave, Phineas tells them, they would see a pair of giant rocks at the end of the strait, which, to Phineas's knowledge, no one had ever made it through. For these rocks, you see, would often collide, and even if the Argo were an iron ship, it would not withstand these clashing rocks. So he tells them to make an experiment. Send a dove through first, and if it happens to make it through, do not hesitate at all to follow and row with all your might. But if the dove does not make it through, then, well, the gods are sending you a distinct message. Go home, boys. This just ain't happening. After the Argonauts take on board all the provisions Phineas bestows upon them, they set straight toward the clashing rocks. In due course, they found themselves entering the narrowest part of the winding streets. Rugged cliffs hemmed them in on either side, and as she advanced, the Argo began to feel a swirling undercurrent. They moved ahead in fear, for now the clash of the colliding rocks and the thunder of surf on the shores fell ceaselessly on their ears. Euphemus seized the dove and climbed onto the prow, while the oarsmen, at Typhus's orders, made a special effort, hoping by their own strength of arm to drive the Argo through the rocks forthwith. They rounded a bend and saw a thing that no one after them has seen, the rocks were moving apart. Their hearts sank, but now Euphemus launched the dove on her flight, and the eyes of all raised to watch her as she passed between the rocks. Once more the rocks met face to face with a resounding crash, flinging a great cloud of spray into the air. The sea gave a terrific roar, and the heavens ring again, but the dove got through unscathed, but for the tips of her tail feathers, which were nipped off by the rocks. The oarsmen gave a cry of triumph, and Typhus shouted at them to row with all their might. They did, hearts pounding from fear and exertion, and they made it to a point where they could see the vast sea on the other side, when suddenly the current and waves pulled them back. No matter how hard they tried, they were losing ground. The massive, towering rocks were rumbling on their left and on their right. But the Argo was caught in the undertow. The rocks started to rush towards each other when Athena, the goddess, braced herself and pushed with all her mights, sending the Argo through just as the rocks collided, with just a few splinters of the Argo's stern nipped off by the rocks. As for the rocks themselves, it was fated that when a ship successfully passed through them, they would become fixed in their spot. 
And so, chests still thumping from excitement, the Argonauts turned east and started heading for their final destination, Colchis. We're going to leave the story there, about halfway through, before the Argonauts turn east and head toward Colchis by skirting the northern coast of the Anatolian Peninsula, that's modern-day Turkey. In our next episode, we'll focus on what happens in Colchis, but for now, a quick recap. Apollonius' story of adventure follows a real geography, as you can see in the maps on our website, and takes the Argonauts first to Lemnos, where they meet some women with a checkered past, and then through the Hellespont to Sisychus, where they help a local king defeat some pretty rough neighbors, only to kill the king himself unintentionally after a storm brings the Argo back to their land. Then Heracles breaks an oar, which leads them to bring the ship to a land where Hylas is abducted by a local water nymph. Heracles and Polyphemus go out in search, but the Argo sets sail without them. After Polydeuces, the boxing Argonaut, strikes and kills Amicus with a lightning blow to the head, the Argonauts visit Phineas, help him drive away the harpies or the snatchers, and learn about how to test the famous clashing rocks before sailing through them. Now, there's a lot going on here, and there is great entertainment value in the stories of the Argonauts. But the readers also get a mental image of, for them, what once went on the far reaches of the world. Well, that's it for another edition of the Greek Myth Files. We had a lot of fun making it, and there are a lot of people to thank for their hard work in bringing it all together. First, great thanks go to our sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia, and the musical artist whose music graces our podcast, Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. Please go by and listen to his music. Thanks also go to our usual voice actors, AJ O'Neill and Julia Summer. And we have a special guest voice actor, Camden Roy, a classics and humanities major who graciously stepped in. Finally, I want to give a special and giant thank you here to the Society of Classical Studies, Classics Everywhere program, which has supported our work with a generous grant. If you are in a position to do so, I encourage you to donate to that program, which helps make the ancient world more accessible to the world at large. This has been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time.